This is The Guardian. Today, the great Lebanese bank robbery. A couple of weeks ago, I went to meet a bank robber. She was about five foot tall, in her late 20s, wearing fluffy slippers. Her name is Sally Hafez, and as we walked to her office in the Lebanese capital, Beirut, she pointed to a line of people waiting to use a cash machine. See those guys waiting to get their money, she told me? I don't do that. I asked if she spoke English, and she said, yeah, a little. But she preferred to tell me her story in Arabic. The story of how, one day in September, Sally had taken a gun and a bottle of petrol and gone to a local bank with a few accomplices. Inside, she pulled the gun out told everyone to back off and demanded tens of thousands of dollars in cash. She took the petrol and splashed some on herself and around her, just so the people inside knew how far she was willing to go, to burn herself and the whole place down if she didn't get the money. Which she did, forcing the bank manager at gunpoint to give her $14,000 cash before she fled. What Sally did has become infectious here in Beirut. Situation unfolded in the Lebanese capital, Beirut. A customer had gone to the bank to withdraw his money. The banks would not let him even... More than a dozen banks have been held up over the past couple of months. The judge in Lebanon has refused to release a gunman who held up to 10 hostages at a Beirut bank last week. to try to get So many armed robberies that the banks had to close en masse for a few days, just hoping the situation calms down. And it hasn't. In fact, in the last hour or so, there was yet another incident. So two such incidents today, the third in the past months. This episode is about a heist. The plundering of people's life savings, their retirement funds, their salaries, that's so far gone unpunished. It's about, in effect, a massive bank robbery, but not the one carried out by Sally. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, why are so many Lebanese people robbing banks? The story of this bank robbery starts a few years ago with the way Lebanon used to be. A place that had serious problems, but also one with a comfortable middle class one that Sally was a part of. When we met, she told me life was great. She went to university, had a job, the family had cars. They could go shopping and travel. And if someone got sick, they could afford to go to hospital. So uh, a few years back, uh, 
Are you okay if I get personal? Yeah, please do. Yeah. So I, I moved here in, in 2014 and it was a, a, a really beautiful place to sort of spend your, your late teenage years and your early 20s. Timur Azhari is a Lebanese journalist. He's the deputy bureau chief in Beirut for Reuters. He grew up abroad but came back to Lebanon to study. And in Beirut, he discovered a city that's cast its spell on people for decades. You had a really big art scene here. You had a lot of music. It felt like every night you could find a gig. You'd go out on a Friday night. You'd, you'd start at uh, a friend's house. You'd move to some of the bars in, in the streets and you'd end up at a, at a club or a live music event. These are especially the, the, these well-known neighborhoods in Beirut, Jemeze, Maram Khayel, also the Hamra neighborhood, an extremely lively place, a place where there, it felt like there was really something for everyone, whether it's slam poetry or a jazz session. What's it like now? Uh, it's overwhelming darkness. You walk these streets and literally it's pitch black. Uh, there is no electricity. That sort of seeps into everything in life. Uh, <laughs> streets, you know, on which you, you used to walk, places that you used to recognize are unrecognizable now. It feels like it's really had a lot of the life sucked out of it. Uh, it feels like a city that honestly sometimes I don't understand how or why it still exists. It feels like the things that made it Beirut aren't there anymore. My parents are from Lebanon too. I've been coming here my whole life. And I also remember how it used to be. Walking down streets and passing Lamborghinis and Porsches and car brands that were so fancy, I had to Google them because guys like me don't know they exist. And thinking, none of this makes sense. How does this small, scarred country have so much wealth? And the answer was, it didn't. It was all a lie. What economists have likened to a gigantic scam that's led to one of the biggest financial collapses ever recorded. And at the heart of it were Lebanon's banks. Yeah, so Lebanon historically has been really built upon this strong banking system, which is described as a pillar of, of the republic. In this small land bordered by Israel and Syria, the east and west fuse smoothly. Ancient and as well as real estate and a service industry. It's always been known as a place where you come and you will be served extremely well, be it the food, be it the nightlife. It's a place where you can really have a good time. Free enterprise flourishes. Modern roads cover the country. Luxury buildings and hotels have sprung up. The Lebanese system was essentially a hoover of money from abroad. The financial comparison of the Lebanon to Switzerland and its role as the trading house of the Middle East is a fair one. And it, so it really became a place that was seen as a playground for the rich. Uh, that was what people describe as Lebanon's golden days in the 50s and 60s, even the early 70s before the Civil War. This was once the richest part of the richest city in the Middle East. Now it's the front line of the war in the Lebanon. Buildings where last year the money makers of the Western world exchanged their millions are now the barricades of Beirut. It has ruined a country and destroyed a nation. After the civil war, Lebanon set about rebuilding, including its famous banking sector. 
One of the things the central bank did was peg the Lebanese currency to the American dollar. So the value of the Lebanese lira wasn't changing every day, it was fixed. A dollar was always worth 1,500 lira. And the two currencies could be used in Lebanon interchangeably. You could pay a taxi driver in dollars or liras, it didn't really matter. And initially, this plan brought stability to the economy after decades of chaos. And Lebanese people wanted to believe in Lebanon. And money, tourism, investments, it all started rushing back the into the country. that are here, Beirut hopes to cap over 2 million visitors in the year 2009. And when you consider the population of Beirut, that doubles the population of Beirut. Then to the St. George Hotel. By the mid-2010s, the dollar peg, the fact that 1,500 Lebanese lira was always worth a dollar, no matter what was going on in the world or the Lebanese economy, was starting to do damage. A peg is expensive. A country needs to have a lot of US dollars on hand to make sure that if the currency starts to flag, the central bank can use its US dollars to buy a lot of it and re-establish the balance. Rich countries like the UAE or Qatar have billions of dollars of USD pouring in all the time. And they can afford to keep doing this, buying up their currency and maintaining their peg. But Lebanon was not a rich country. Its currency was being kept artificially high. And it made people less likely to start a business in Lebanon, because why not start it in Turkey instead, where the currency was weaker and you didn't have to pay people as much and you could sell your stuff for a more competitive price out in the world? And as a result, the Lebanese economy, it stopped making things. It became cheaper to just import everything from overseas, which meant you needed more dollars. It became like an addiction. Eventually, Lebanon needed dollars to keep pouring in, not just to keep living the high life, but just to hold things together for another day. So that's what the economy was based on. It was really this idea that uh, if we keep bringing money in from abroad, things will keep going well. The problem is that while that worked for a, a quite a long time after the civil war, around 2011, things start drying up. The war in Syria begins next door. You have a large influx of, of refugees. You have instability that comes to the country uh, in the form of explosions, in the form of real spillover of conflict. And suddenly, the, the global economy is not looking as strong as it was either. This presents a problem for the people who run this country. The system isn't working so well anymore. People are starting to have their doubts that Lebanon's the best place for their money. And that doubt is dangerous, because if the dollars stop flowing, this house of cards that's the Lebanese economy will collapse. And so, around 2016, the country's central bank, the Bank of Lebanon, comes up with an idea. They call it financial engineering. And what it amounts to is basically offering extremely high interest rates for any dollars that come into Lebanon. Financial authorities tell the country's banks, any dollar you deposit with us will give you returns of up to 15%, way more than the low single-digit returns they can get by investing the money elsewhere. And for a time, it works. The money keeps flowing in. Thanks to these interest rates, the banks are making fantastic profits, billions of dollars in an economy that's barely growing. And on paper, the central bank is attracting enough dollars to keep the Lebanese lira afloat. But some economists watching on are getting worried. They're publishing reports sounding an alarm, saying Lebanon's government debt is one of the highest in the world and it doesn't have the capacity to pay this money back. And instead of trying to fix this, it appears to be just trying to get more dollars flowing in to cover the losses. There's a name for this kind of scheme 
It's well known. You've probably heard it. Essentially, the Lebanese system was a giant Ponzi scheme, perhaps the world's biggest Ponzi scheme ever. And a Ponzi scheme is essentially a, a system in which you bring in investors and you promise them super high returns on their investment. And the only way you can pay the, those actual returns is by getting in more investors and using their new money to pay, pay off the old investors. That's essentially what was happening here. And like all things that are too good to be true, at some point it is too good to be true. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. By 2019, the cracks are starting to show. People who understand balance sheets are moving their money out of Lebanon. For the first time in two decades, the value of the lira starts to slip. There are shortages of petrol and other imported stuff. And some banks are starting to restrict how much money people can withdraw from their own accounts. And the Lebanese government says, we can control this. We just need to tighten our belts. 2019 comes along and they're working on the budget. And in this budget, the prime minister at the time promises unprecedented austerity to the public. He makes a big deal out of it. He says that this has to be done. These are difficult choices, but this is good for the country in the end. And that really sort of ends up expressing itself in this single tax levied on free internet calls that became known as the WhatsApp tax in Lebanon. Mm. And this was going to be a, I believe, $6 a month tax. And... It did not go down well. Lebanon is in the grip of unprecedented protests. 1.5 million people, that is a quarter of the population, have taken to the streets over the last five days to call for political and economic reform. For the first time in years, I feel proud to be Lebanese. Seeing all of these people out here, I've never felt such unity. I remember that day very well. I was at the newsroom. We start seeing a small protest on TV. They gather in central Beirut. They start walking around the capital. And as they walk around the capital in circles, they gather more and more and more people. We are fed up with all this. We are here for the future of our kids. There's no future for us, no jobs at all. And this is not acceptable anymore. We have shut up for a long time, and now it's time to talk. You have thousands and thousands of people, not just in Beirut, but across the country in what is the single biggest uprising in Lebanon's history. It's this moment of extreme hope and unity in a country with a history of division and hopelessness. What happened here, the revolution that is happening is like, for us, it's so beautiful. I'm 34 years old and I've never seen something like this before. A country that you know, lived through a 15-year civil war, a sectarian conflict. And for the first time, you had people in 80 towns and cities and villages rise up and say, we're done with this. It felt like it, it, there was hope again. You saw the most beautiful side of people. You, you saw this country that is known for its creativity and that actually, maybe, yes, it is exceptional. It's exceptional in the sense that people are alive and, and they're asking for something and they're pushing for something. Um, so it felt like this moment where everything was possible. And you, uh, some breaking news out of Lebanon. They brought down a government after two weeks of protests. In the last hour, the Lebanese Prime Minister, Saad al-Hariri, has offered uh, the resignation of his entire cabinet, and himself as well, actually, as anti-government protests continue. <laughs> if only it went according to plan. Sally was at the protests also, she told me. 
from the very first day, even before. Hopeful that this was a moment where Lebanon was changing for the better. And she still felt that way, even when the country's banks made a surprise announcement. That every bank in the country was closing its doors for two weeks. For a while, people didn't really notice because the country was really swept by these protests. You know, in a country of six million, on the first Sunday after protests began, you had more than a million people in the streets. Uh, so the country was preoccupied. But after two weeks of the banks closing, they reopened and people awoke to a new reality. It really was a new reality. It was a reality in which you couldn't get your money out of the bank. It started with a $1,000 limit. It went down to 500. If you had $10,000 in the bank or if you had a million dollars in the bank, when those banks reopened, you, you went to the bank and they told you, we can only give you $500. Why? There's a period of instability. We'll get over it. But right now we've got to prevent a run on the banks. And, and that's the way it is. It was a mismatch between this world of high interest rates and sucking in money to pay off old investments that clashed with a real world in which people suddenly had no more confidence in this system and wanted to get their money out now. And it just wasn't there. So this whole system built on attracting more and more money to keep paying out more and more interest, what you called basically a Ponzi scheme, had stopped working. That's essentially correct. Um, the, the Ponzi scheme stopped working because the money stopped flowing in. Imagine going to the bank or a cash machine and only being able to access a few hundred dollars a week, no matter how desperately you need the money. Now, imagine that on a national scale. But it was even worse because not only was people's money stuck in the banks, the Lebanese government had run out of dollars to keep the currency artificially high. And so the value of people's money started to melt away. Savings that were worth $100,000 when you deposited them were suddenly worth 90 grand, then $60,000, then half of what they were when you put them there. And you're watching this happen, but you can't do anything about it. You can't touch the money. It's just numbers on a screen. It's, it, it's a, it, it was a, a national feeling of immense helplessness. Where did that money go? Like, if all of that money was given by investors, by... Lebanese people bringing their money from overseas into the Lebanese economy. And when they went to ask for it, it wasn't there anymore. Where did it go? People put their money in banks. Part of that money was taken out in the form of interest and profits for the shareholders of banks, the owners of banks. Banks also lent a huge portion of that money, up to 80% of that money, to the government via the central bank. The government in Lebanon didn't spend that money on uh, investment and, you know, prosperity, creating a digital economy, perhaps, or uh, parks or uh, public transport. Or on things that might generate revenue that would mean they could pay that money back. Exactly. No, a lot of that money was simply plundered and stolen. 
plundered and stolen. People's life savings went from their private banks into the treasury of one of the most notoriously corrupt governments in the world and never found their way back. When a country's financial system collapses like Lebanon's, there are ways out, ways to stop falling and begin climbing back up. And a few of Lebanon's close allies and the IMF sprung into action, offering Lebanon billions of dollars as a bailout to rescue the economy. But they knew the Lebanese system was broken and they didn't want to keep pouring good money after bad. And so on this bailout they were offering, they put a few conditions. So what are the reforms? Extremely simple things. Basic governance. You know, Lebanon is a country that's essentially run like it's in the 50s. It's an entirely paper-based system, which means that there's a lot of room for inefficiencies and corruption. And what was asked of the Lebanese government is, root out those inefficiencies and corruption so that when we give you money, we know that it's not being stolen or leaking out of the pipe somewhere. So we know it's actually going where it needs to go. Lebanese politics is incredibly violent. Assassinations, kidnappings, they happen regularly. But on preserving this system and its lack of transparency, the country's leaders found common ground. The negotiations with the IMF stalled. There would be no bailout. By the time we get to August 4th, 2020, you're about a year into this financial collapse. It's already one of the worst in the world. COVID has come along in March and made this much worse. You've had a severe lockdown in Lebanon where we were all stuck at home. We couldn't go out at all. People who were just making ends meet before were now, it was absolutely impossible for them to continue. You had the first sort of hunger and and bread riots break out in northern Tripoli, which was already one of the poorest cities in the Mediterranean. So you're looking at a situation of immense desperation where people really feel like it can't get any worse, that you've really hit rock bottom. And then obviously it does. Um, I saw it happen, actually. Um, it was... <laughs> yeah, it was... I. I I was uh, in the mountains above Beirut, uh, just a 20-minute drive from, from the city. A friend texts me and says, the port's on fire. And I just look out of my window and I can see the port about 10 kilometers away, straight line view. And it gets bigger and bigger. And suddenly, it just explodes. And there's a massive red flash. And I see this mushroom cloud rise above the port. I see it go into the clouds. I see it push through the clouds, the clouds sort of undulating. An enormous explosion at the port in Beirut, Lebanon, has widespread The cause is The Lebanese Health Ministry says at least 70 people were killed. Ammonium nitrate was stored in the port. The Lebanese people should ask why it was there. We found out very quickly that what fueled this explosion was a massive store of ammonium nitrate, which is a highly explosive 
chemical, uh, roughly 3,000 tons of it, that were kept in a hangar at the port, along with a bunch of other explosives and flammable materials that really, if you wanted to create a bomb, you would have put those things together. Hangar number 12 at the port. This was sort of the hangar where they put everything that could go boom. And they thought that was a good idea. The whole political reigning elite that knew about these explosives in the port of Beirut, at the heart of the city, is the main cause. Because they allowed this to happen. Whether it's and if Lebanon was already a place that was boiling with anger before this, at what had been done to people's livelihoods, this caused it to sort of boil over. A few days after the explosion, there was this protest on, on the 8th of August, which I went to. Because we want the people responsible for the blast and everything that's been happening for us 30 years ago until now to be held accountable. And I can only describe it as sort of a state shooting at already wounded people. Uh, there were 700 injuries that day, a massive crackdown on protesters who really felt that they had lost everything. I remember a scene from that day from the protests after, after the blast, <laughs> where it was late at night and protesters had occupied ministries, they had blocked roads. There was a feeling of sort of, let's go, let's get them. Um, and security forces started beating up people. And this man who was hit sort of turned to them and just kept, kept screaming, you've taken everything. You've taken everything. We've lost everything. We've lost everything. In the first months of Lebanon's crisis, as the currency would hit some new record low, or a big business would announce they were leaving the country, or the hours of electricity would be cut again, you could feel people's fear, but also a feeling of expectation that surely this must be it. That the former or current militia leaders who make up the feuding factions of Lebanon's government would now see the human cost of what was happening in their country, decide they had seen enough and agree to reform their system in exchange for that international bailout, even if those reforms meant giving up some power. And you might think this moment, an explosion that blew up half the city, killed hundreds of people and left thousands homeless, all of it avoidable, the result of negligence on the part of the government, that this would be that moment. And you would be wrong. The blast changed nothing. And since then, Lebanon has only continued to slide. The crisis took, took a lot away from people. Uh, it took away their, their hopes and their dreams. You can see moms, dads, who used to have jobs, who never begged for anything. They are begging for the pot of milk or for the bag of rice. In the two years since, we've seen it essentially start to take away just the very basics. The hospitals are reaching a point where they will not be able to admit patients 
We don't have enough money in our hands to run the day-to-day -day operations. If, if you want to go to a hospital, the basic medical equipment is no longer there. Basic state services like electricity and water are worse than they've ever been, and they've never been good. But today you've got about an hour of power a day. If you can afford it, you subscribe to a private generator service, which essentially is a guy in the neighborhood who's got a bunch of generators who charges you usually too much for service that isn't great um, and provides you with, you know, enough power to make your fridge, your fan, your AC, and maybe a couple other things work. But if you, if you go further than that, it'll all shut down. You get to a, a place where the value of a public sector worker's salary no longer can pay for the fuel to get them to work. I mean, imagine that. You have people who go to work every single day, and at the end of the month, they end up making about $100. And the price of fuel, meanwhile, has skyrocketed to the extent where they can't even afford to get to work with that money. You're talking about a situation of complete paralysis. It's difficult to really comprehend the scale of Lebanon's collapse, unless you're living through it. It touches everything, every aspect of life you can think of. Take, for example, money. I'm standing in one of the hundreds of money changes that have sprung up across Beirut since the crisis started. These money changes have become essential because credit cards, online payments, any kind of digital money has basically ceased to exist. Lebanon is now an entirely cash-based society, and the value of that cash is constantly changing. I'm holding in my hands a 100,000 lira note, Lebanon's most valuable banknote. Three years ago, it was worth about 67 US dollars. Today, it's about $2.80. Almost certainly in a month, it's going to be worth even less. It's draining in value as I'm holding it. If you can get access to foreign money because a family member overseas sends it via Western Union or they fly it in stuffed into their luggage and their jackets, you end up at a money changer like this one, where people bring US dollars or euros or pounds and trade them in for bricks of Lebanese cash, literally bricks of it. Someone walking in here with $500 will walk out with a wad of at least 170 banknotes bulging in their pockets. And then there's the trouble of actually using the money. Nobody knows what anything costs anymore. Most shops and restaurants don't bother printing their prices because those prices are constantly getting higher. A can of Coke, for example, used to cost 1,000 lira, then 5,000, then 15,000. Now it's 25,000 lira. And if you're most people, you don't have the luxury of access to foreign money. You're living off a Lebanese salary that's lost 90% of its value. So that one can of Coke might now be costing you up to a quarter or a half of your daily earnings. And of course, it's not a can of Coke that's really worrying you. It's the cost of meat, school books, clothes, medicine, all of it getting further and further out of reach. And sometimes you might feel like you're managing, surviving, figuring out some way to hold on. And then something really bad happens and it shows you just how vulnerable you really are. مرة 
It was last year, Sally told me, that her sister started to feel sick. She was having headaches and went from doctor to doctor until one finally figured out she had a form of brain cancer. The doctor said she needed surgery urgently within two days and it would cost $20,000. Sally had gone from earning $2,000 a month to just 100 bucks. She and her dad had a combined 120 grand in the bank, but the banks wouldn't let them touch the money. They got Sally's sister into surgery. They sold cars, jewellery, whatever they needed to. But that was just the beginning of a long, expensive treatment. Sally says her sister needs injections every 20 days, and each one costs about $6,000. And so many doctors had left Lebanon, about 40% of them, according to the WHO, that eventually, the only way to make sure Sally's sister survived was to send her to a treatment centre overseas. And, of course, that meant the family needed more money. Sally says she kept going to her bank, begging them to give her access to the cash. And they tell her, I'm sorry, there just isn't any to give. I asked her what that meant for her sister. And she told me it means she dies and nobody cares. Coming up, what Sally did next and how she got away with it. Today, more than three years into the financial crisis, there continues to be no bailout. Lebanon's politicians can't agree on the reforms needed to access the money. The country currently has no prime minister, no president. It's totally paralysed and dysfunctional. People are still locked away from their savings. And the currency has become worthless. And this currency at the beginning of the crisis was worth 1,500 Lebanese pounds to $1. Today, as we're talking right now, how much is that currency worth? About 40,000 pounds per dollar. 40,000 pounds. It's a loss of value of about 96 or 97%. So that $100,000 you had in your account before the crisis, today, that's worth three or $4,000. And you can't even get it out of the bank. The basic things, we can't get it. We can go to the supermarket. My supermarket expenses is, let's say, 250000 which is the minimum thing. And what we are allowed to get is almost a bit higher than that. So they're almost killing us with that. And so the relationship between people and banks, formerly this, this sort of relationship of you know, respect and admiration for what this banking sector has given you in terms of prosperity, suddenly becomes a relationship of hate and deep frustration. And the bank becomes a place of humiliation 
it becomes a place where you stand in line for long hours, where you're told that you can't withdraw a few hundred dollars to pay your bill, where if you want to pay for an operation, the bank teller asks you to provide documentation. He actually tells you, oh, can you prove to me that you've got whatever condition it is? Hmm. And what do you do then? For some people, you take matters into your own hands. طلبت انه كنت عم تعطيني وصيه لها وانا هون ما تحملت الوصيه تبعتها انه شو تموت وربي لك بنتك By early September, Sally's sister was running out of time and hope. She had a baby girl and she told Sally that she would need to raise her instead. I couldn't stand that, Sally told me. And I could hear the hatred in her voice. I wanted to kill them all, she said. She went down to the bank and made a final plea. Please give me the money. My sister is desperate. We are desperate. And from her own money, they offered her $50 a month. Not enough even to cover a day of her sister's treatments. So Sally went home. She changed her clothes, called some friends, took her nephew's plastic replica gun, a bottle of petrol, and together, the group returned to the bank. She walked inside, pulled the gun out, told everyone to step back. I asked her if she'd been afraid, and she said only for her sister, and that if she was shot and killed, it was better than doing nothing. If she did nothing, she told me, she'd have killed herself anyway. I wondered too if she felt bad for the people in the bank, the ones who didn't know the gun was plastic and that she wasn't going to set herself on fire. She fixed me with a look and said, give me the microphone. She said she had noticed there was an old lady in the bank and a mum and her daughter. She waited for both of them to go before she pulled out her gun. You're right. I scared people, she said. I asked their forgiveness. But if you wanted to weigh their fear and their worry against that of mine and my sisters, there's no match. Ours is bigger by far. Inside the bank, Sally said. The manager first offered her $200. Are you taking the piss, she said. I want everything. He opened the safe and she said she counted out as much as she could in the time she had, about $14,000. And she made the bank manager sign off on it. As far as she was concerned, it was her money. She wasn't stealing it. She was no bank robber. She and the whole country, they were the victims of a bank robbery. Then she rushed home, knowing the police would soon be following. And there she changed her clothes into a shador, an Islamic dress that covers the face. And she went on Facebook and wrote a post claiming she was at the airport about to fly to Istanbul, which the authorities believed and sent officers there. 
and Sally slipped out of her house and went on the run to a rugged part of the country on the Syrian border. We first communicated while she was still there, in hiding. Eventually, after a few weeks, Sally surrendered. Her sister was going overseas, she said, and she needed to go with her. In court, Sally caught a lucky break. The bank chose not to press charges against her. They said they sympathised with her situation. In fact, very few banks have pursued charges against the Lebanese people that have robbed them, which is confusing. And I got a clue why myself when I went to the scene of another bank robbery a few weeks ago. By the time I got there, the bank robber had given up his weapon and was negotiating with the bank manager inside. And there was a big crowd outside cheering him on. And I asked someone, if this guy doesn't have a gun, why aren't the police just going in there and getting him? And the guy motioned to the crowd standing outside the bank and said, well, because we're here. Sally, meanwhile, says her sister is leaving for treatment overseas next week. With all the delay, they've just learned that her cancer is spreading. For someone listening to your story in England or the US, I asked or Sally country, what she wanted people to know about her story. And she said, some might hear about what I did and think I'm a thief or some kind of gangster. But if they just knew what had happened in Lebanon, instead they would say, good on her. Everyone in Lebanon has lost their money. And that woman did what nobody else could. She got it back. Sally, thank you very much. <laughs> Timor, listening to Sally's story and to the story of Lebanon, people might think that it's hopeless, that none of it can be fixed. But is there a way out of this for the Lebanese people? All of this is avoidable. The World Bank have described Lebanon's crisis as a deliberate depression orchestrated by elites. It doesn't get any more clear than that. And what that means is you've got international institutions and donor countries lining up to, to, to tell you, we're going to give you, you know, money. You've got the IMF also offering $3 billion. All of that is conditional on a few reform measures that for the average person don't mean any kind of harm. The interests they harm are the interests of the politicians in power. You're talking about things that really would bring Lebanon into the 21st century and would therefore harm the networks that have been in place since the 20th century. And politicians don't have the will to do that. The solutions are there. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a crisis of a lack of ideas or a lack of plans uh, or a lack of solutions. It's just a lack of implementing them. This isn't destiny. This is decision. Timur, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, Michael.
That was Timur Azhari, a Reuters journalist and the deputy chief of their Beirut bureau. Many thanks to him, to Sally, and also to Mike Azar, an economics commentator in Beirut, for taking the time to explain to me slowly how Lebanon's economy unraveled. It was very useful. Before we go, there are just a few days until Americans vote in the US midterm elections, and Guardian columnist and former Washington correspondent Jonathan Friedland is back there for Politics Weekly US, speaking to politicians and voters in the run-up to tomorrow's vote. His first episodes from the US are already out. Search for Politics Weekly US wherever you listen to Today in Focus. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Alex Atak. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.